Inclusive education involves a collaborative approach. We often think of the school-based team when determining how the needs of the students will be met. This team involves the teachers, the educational assistants and administration, but there are also other professionals within this model that may be needed to support student learning. The team may include professionals beyond the school setting and include an educational psychologist, a speech and language pathologist, or perhaps an occupational therapist. These professionals provide important support through student assessment, recommendations, and consultation with teachers and school staff. They are valuable members within an inclusionary team. In this episode, we will be interviewing these members to gain a better understanding of the role of an educational psychologist, speech and language pathologist, and an OT in supporting students within the school setting. Let's meet these important educational team members. Today, we'd like to welcome Sean, an educational psychologist. Hey, Sean. Hello. How's it going? Good, thanks. Good. So, Sean, you contribute to student learning in a different capacity than, let's say, a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what is an educational psychologist and what exactly do you do? Sure. Um, So, I think when people hear the term psychologist, I think what they're actually thinking of usually is a clinical psychologist. Um, who most often specialize in working with people directly or clients for emotional and behavioral problems. So um, things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, interpersonal or relational problems. Um, An educational psychologist role compared to them, I'd say is much more focused. Uh, My role is the way I see it anyways, um, is working alongside teaching staff um, in meeting unique learning, behavioral and emotional needs of a wide variety of students. I do this most often by providing teachers, student support service teachers like yourself, uh, parents, guardians with information. And I gather that information mostly through norm referenced assessments. So things like cognitive ability, academic achievement, um, developmental history, uh, and also gathering through things like uh, interviews with classroom teachers, with parents, um, looking through CUME files for school records. I'd say oftentimes my work results in a diagnosis. So the things I most often uh, diagnose would be like learning disabilities or specific learning disorder, intellectual disabilities, ADHD, um, FASD, autism. Um, Those are probably the most common ones. Mm -hmm. And again, the goal of it is really just to ensure that the programming is appropriate for the student and that the supports and strategies that are put in place for them um, are empirically or scientifically supported. So ideally, uh, the goal of sharing this information with all parties is really just to help coordinate supports um, for the student in question, I'd say. So it's um, from a support, you provide support from like a collaborative approach Mm -hmm. where you're working as like, like I said, like a team member to support student learning. Yeah. So how do you support student learning? Like what would be the process? Like you've mentioned assessment and diagnosis and Mm -hmm. Just like what would be the process? So if a teacher had a student that they were concerned about, how could you support that student's learning? It, it happens in different ways, but um, usually what it is is just by providing information about um, like individual strengths, areas of need, and how to best support those area of, 
that that area the areas I guess of need. So would it start with the teacher, you know, having the concerns, maybe going to admin or student support, and then a referral process would would start? Yeah, I'd say typically what happens is the teacher, like you said, has concerns. Um, and then from there, uh, they usually voice those concerns to the student support service teacher, who will usually at that point start um, implementing some sort of um, you know, strategies or remedial programming maybe to help and you know to support that student. If they're not making the types of gains that they would expect, or if there's you know um, lingering problems that that aren't don't seem to be getting any better, oftentimes what happens I think is a student support service teacher will meet maybe with admin, but often with the parents to talk about maybe you know we need a little extra information in terms of how to best support your your child, um, and an educational psychologist is is one of the people who can do that. And usually consent um, is there's signed consent at that point. Uh, but before I start working with the student, um, I'll get that referral. I'll look at all the areas of concern. I might have a few questions for the teachers or student support service teachers before I start working with that student or reach out to the parents. But eventually, um, I'm going to be reaching out to the parents just to make sure they understand what I'm doing, um, sort of some of the implications of the work I do. Um and yeah, from there, I come into the school and I usually work in the school with, with the student. And once that's all done, I put together a report with my, my results and most importantly, the recommendations that I have. And we share that amongst the whole team. So often classroom teachers, student sports service teachers, sometimes even administration is in on those meetings and parents usually. So when you come into the school, is it mostly for assessment purposes or yes. observation or? It's both or of both. those things. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's not necessarily directed to maybe like an assessment, mm -hmm. but a teacher does have some concerns about learning or helping a student who has a learning disability or any of the, the other areas that you mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. could they reach out to you in a collaborative way or in yeah. just a supportive kind of way? That's an interesting question. Um, it it sort of depends on the school division and the amount of resources that are available. And I know that changes, you know, all the time. Um, in my capacity, yes, I would, I would say that if teachers do have concerns, um, and they've already spoken to student support service teachers say, and they still have some concerns and are looking for more information, definitely they can call me or, you know, just reach out by email. So, you know, they could reach out to you and maybe even if you don't have the resources they need, connect them with another person who may within our community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, Sean, for sharing and helping our listeners better understand what it is that you do and how you support student learning as an educational psychologist. You are definitely a valued member in an inclusive educational team. Thank you, cool. Sean. Thank you. So today joining us, we have Cheryl Turner, who is an SLP. Um, Cheryl, I was just wondering if you could give us some insight on what an SLP's role is in the classroom and in the school. Um, and we'll start with the first question. So can you just clarify what an SLP is, what they do or what uh, supports they can help with um, in student learning? Sure. So an SLP is a professional with six or more years of training in uh, communication development and disorders. And so they will, an SLP will serve anyone from the age of you know zero to a hundred so so at birth 
um, maybe they would see somebody who has a cleft palate or cerebral palsy or Down syndrome. And then on the senior end of it, they might see someone who has a stroke or maybe they have um, ALS and they're dealing with needing some kind of alternative communication system. And so there are kind of uh, five main areas that an SLP will deal with. And uh, the biggest one is language, for sure. So that's the understanding of what people say to them and the, how they use language. And that can be uh, spoken language or written language. So that's where kind of the literacy piece of it comes in. And then um, speech would be the next biggest area that we deal with. And uh, that's the way people say sounds. So sometimes uh, kids will have difficulty saying the R sound or the S sound. So they're little wascally wabbits or they can't say the F sound. So they kind of sound like this. Or uh, they might talk like uh, one of the characters from Looney Tunes and say things like, I taught, I taught, putty tat. And that's like they have more speech sound errors. Or they might have no speech at all. They might not be able to talk because they have um, some type of oral motor disorder or perhaps they're deaf. Um, the next biggest area and an area that's actually getting bigger is um, social skills. So those are things like autism. And then another smaller subset is uh, selective mutism, which is getting to be a bigger and bigger demand as more kids are experiencing anxiety uh, around interacting with others. And then there's um, fluency, which is stuttering. People would know that as stuttering. That's a fairly small area. And then another one is voice. So those would be things like cleft palate, which I've already mentioned, uh, nodules. Uh, so vocal nodules, like singers, like Elton John and Stevie Nicks, they have vocal nodules and they have to get them removed. And um, and then there's uh, pitch. Another one, another area that's actually kind of growing is pitch. Um, and we have dealt with pitch uh, before, the, the tones that people say. But a, it's getting to be a bigger area because of people uh, transitioning. So in the trans population, they might want to have a voice that sounds more the way that they want to look. Uh, um, and then uh, there's some other areas that are kind of, um, they kind of go under the ones that I just talked about, but they're also kind of areas of their own. And those would be things like augmentative communication. So sometimes uh, kids can't talk, so they need a communication board or an electronic system. Uh, and I've already mentioned the deaf and hard of hearing population. And then there's one that we really don't deal with in the schools, and that's um, accent reduction. So we would never deal with accent reduction in the schools because it's fairly low priority. It would just be someone, maybe a business person who, who wants to have um, a more typical, say, English accent. There are actually five ways that SLPs can support uh, kids in school. Uh, so they could, SLPs could provide general education about uh, language or speech development to teachers for them to use with the whole class. So those would be supporting literacy mainly because uh, speech and language form the foundation for literacy. And uh, so that would be one. Another one would be working directly with students. So pulling kids out and working individually or in small groups on whatever they needed to work on. Another one would be setting up in-class programming for specific students. Um, 
And another one might be home programming where we can get parents to work with them. And then the fifth one I put is a combination of all of those, which would be the ideal. That's what we want to do ideally is all of those. The issue, of course, is time. And unfortunately, we don't have enough staffing right now to do all of those or to do all of them well. So we a lot of times end up doing most of them not as well as we would like. But those are the things that we can do. And what about inclusive education? Right. So SLPs, that's their goal, is we want to always have kids included in the classroom with as little uh, support as possible and just include just like everybody else. But sometimes kids have issues where uh, they need a lot of support or sometimes they just need a little support. And I'll just give you an example of that. So, for example, um, I had a little guy. And he was in kindergarten and the teacher, the assignment was they were supposed to draw something that started with what something that started with W. And uh, so he drew a circle with a stick on it. And so the teacher came by and she was trying to get him to finish his drawing. And she said, oh, are you drawing a wagon? Is it a w- wagon? And the guy goes, no, I drew a Wowie pop. So in his mind, he thought that Wowie Pop started with W. And so you can see how this would be an issue when it comes to reading, right? Like when in his mind, he's looking at a picture of a lollipop, and but in his mind, it's a Wowie Pop, and then there's an L at the beginning of the word. It's going to be confusing. So uh, we want to definitely work with those kids. And those kids can be, that's a simple fix. You know, maybe eight sessions with the SLP and then some carryover with a classroom teacher. Perfect. Um, And then we have maybe have kids with uh, something a little bit more severe, like selective mutism, where they uh, desperately, desperately, desperately want to talk, but their anxiety is preventing them from talking. And so... That usually takes a real combination approach of sort of everybody backing off and and working with the child. But um, that one is is a really good one where we can work together. Um, And then we can provide lower level uh, literacy activities for specific kids, kids who uh, maybe have Down syndrome and they're not at the point of putting um, symbols to sounds yet but they still need to do something with literacy. So we can provide some of those lower level uh, literacy activities for those kids. And then we come to uh, kids with autism. And those kids are usually, or often, I shouldn't say usually, but maybe often difficult to deal with in class because they end up having a lot of behaviors. And so your SLP can work with you with a a visual schedule and uh, help you get that set up in the classroom. And that is something that really has to be done in class. We can do that in the therapy session to kind of reinforce it, but it's something that has to be done in class. So while we do a lot of pullout work, there's a few things that need to be done uh, right in class. And then the other one would be augmentative communication. And that's a really high level one with that where kids who can't talk need an augmentative system. And that one takes a lot of work and a lot of effort on everybody's part to get that going and and to make that work. But your SLP can get that set up and help you keep modifying it and keep working on it. So um, that's, that's a, uh, that's another way. So kind of have taken you from kind of easy, just need a little bit of help into uh, kids who need quite a bit of SLP support.
Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for that answer. I feel like you touched on a lot of different scenarios that teachers might come across in their careers. I know select mutism, for example, can be one that can often be misunderstood. So um, working with your SLP as a teacher is very important so that you're not furthering the issue unknowingly as the classroom teacher. So thanks for speaking to all those. So do you have any recommendations you would suggest to teachers or parents or tips on how teachers can be better prepared to work with an SLP? I think the main thing is to ask lots of questions because SLPs and teachers and parents aren't always speaking the same language. We tend to use a lot of, especially SLPs and maybe even to a lesser extent, teachers tend to use a lot of lingo that is specific to their profession. And we don't mean to do that to be confusing, but sometimes it happens because we're trying to do things quickly. So make sure that you're asking lots of questions and just know that as a teacher or a parent, you're not expected to know everything that we know and or even grasp it the first time we present it. Like make sure that you're asking and keep asking again or ask to be shown. Say, can you demonstrate that for me? Can you demonstrate that to me in class? Can you demonstrate it with this child? Can you demonstrate it for the whole class? So that um, you're really sure of what it is that the SLP is presenting or recommending. Because uh, I think sometimes teachers get frustrated because there's been a misunderstanding about what is being presented and and then so then it doesn't get done. And uh, so I think preventing miscommunication is kind of ironic, isn't it? That it's an SLP who is sometimes the most miscommunicative of all the people. Um, so and so ask for a demo and then ask for more help. And I guess the other thing would be be honest. If this is too much work for you in class, that's another thing I think teachers are being expected to do so many things and provide so much support in all these different areas. And if you have five, six, seven kids in your class with special needs of varying levels, you know, you could, that could be a full-time job just addressing those needs. So if what the SLP is presenting is not going to work for the child in your class, or if it's parent at home, just make sure you say, this is not possible. We cannot do this. We do not have enough time, or I don't have an assistant in my class. I can't possibly manage this. So that the SLP can uh, maybe come up with something different, something that's a little less intense. So that would be, because SLPs are, they're kind of like overachievers and they tend to like try to do like the very best thing that they could instead of maybe starting a little slower. So, um, and then I guess the other thing would be advocate for your kids. If you don't, if you can't manage what is going on in your class with your kids, or if you feel like you have kids in your class who need a certain um, support for, for them to develop their communication skills or their underlying literacy skills, make sure that you pass that on up the chain. Make sure that you let your building administrator and your reading coordinator, whoever it is in your school division, make sure you let them know that that is occurring and that these kids need additional support. Because I feel like sometimes, again, teachers get so much pressure to do everything. And really, nobody expects you reasonably to do everything. Like you do need additional supports and the kids need additional supports as well. Yeah, for sure. Right. We are teachers. We are not SLPs. Right. So we need that 
help and that assistance to make sure and work together so that we're doing the best for our students. So yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate you saying that just be open with your SLP and ask them for help or ask them to maybe change something so that it's a little more workable because there is a lot of pressure, I think, on both sides that we put on ourselves and that is put on us. So I think working together instead of getting frustrated and not doing something is a better approach, right? That open communication. Okay, thanks so much, Cheryl. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us today and sharing all your knowledge with us. Well, it was wonderful. It was great to be here. In this episode, we will be sharing how an occupational therapist can support student learning within a school setting. So I'd like to welcome Christina, who works as an occupational therapist. Hi, Christina. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining me today. So let's start off for our listeners with just explaining what is an occupational therapist? What is it that you do? Okay. Well, essentially, occupational therapy is um, more of a medical, medical rehab profession. And we do work with all ages. Um, in a school setting, we would uh, consider what um, students, what we would try to do is consider students in context. So looking at what their student profile is, what their developmental skills are, and then what are their activities that they need to achieve. So the term occupational therapy comes from um, thinking about occupations as our daily activities or our daily, the expectations, the tasks that we have to get done in a day. Um, and so we're looking at always the client, the person's skills, their strengths, and maybe their interests and what the expectations are in their environments. Okay. So when you say like you look at their occupations, so in a school setting, you would look at their occupation as a student in a classroom. So what is it that they need to be able to do? Am I on the right track there? That for sure. So it might be things like um, self-care activities. So toileting, washing their hands, wearing their masks. Um, it could be um, accessing the school environment, tolerating the classroom, sitting in their desks, learning new activities, managing the playground, even the interactions with their peers, their listening and attend attending skills. So just really looking at their overall function within the school environment. Okay, so as a classroom teacher, um, let's say I'm a kindergarten classroom teacher and I'm observing, you know, there's a student that I have some concerns about who seems to be struggling with, let's say, some of those daily activities within the classroom. When would it become a greater concern where I might need to look at the support of an occupational therapist versus, you know, um, this is just something that's going on for this child in the classroom setting. It might pass. It's not really a concern. Well, I would say, and just in my experience in the school, um, working in the schools, we essentially function as uh, consultants. And um, so we're not in the schools all that often, typically. And so some of the things, I guess, to consider is um, there's different developmental areas that it might be appropriate for an occupational therapist. So I as an occupational therapist would look at uh, possibly regulation skills, how students are able to um, keep their energy level at a appropriate level for the classroom or the 
gym or the playground, depending on what the situation. I would look at engagement. Is a child able to engage in the activities? I would look at their safety, their ex uh, ability to access the environment. And so to start with, sometimes as an occupational therapist, we would work more as um, looking at universal strategies and helping teachers develop ideas to support uh, just typical development, I guess. And then uh, if there were students that were having tr more difficulty, more your intensive needs supports, that's when I think it would be a more individualized um, assessment or consultation, I guess, and, and coming in and looking at that child's specific developmental profile and how they're responding to the classroom around them. So I'm not sure okay. if I answered that question. Yeah. Well, I, I've got two more as a result of that. Okay. Now you mentioned the word regulation. Yeah. And I know when you read um, journals in education, they talk about self-regulation a lot. And some right. teachers might not have an understanding, you know, especially from an OT perspective. You know, what, what does that mean, regulation? Okay. So essentially how I would describe regulation is um, it's, a, it's our response to stress really. And whether that stressor is something that's internal, like a tummy ache, or external, like a loud noise, or just the task demands. It's really about how our bodies, our nervous systems respond to that stress. And so um, typically developing children, we wouldn't see, um, I guess, the self-regulation, the ability to respond to the stress and manage their responses until a about age eight. Prior to that, children need um, uh, regulation support from the external world. So whether it's from the adult around them or the environment and the environment. And so I really look at um, what is the situation. So if we're sitting in a classroom, if we're at circle time, the situation is we expect kids to sit and listen and really read when it's their turn to respond. Um, so then I look at, well, what's the child's activity level in that situation? Does it match that? Are they busier than what we expect? Or are they maybe more lethargic and not able to sit upright and stay attentive? So I'm always encouraging teachers to look for those mismatches when their child's energy level doesn't match the situation uh, and then consider what might be contributing to that mismatch. And so there could be environmental. It could be that maybe the, the, the noise is too loud or maybe the lights are too bright or maybe, um, maybe they have a defensiveness to touch and there's too many people close to them. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I start is, is looking for mismatches and then what can we do to support that regulation, um, development? Because essentially what we want is we want the students when they're feeling that stress and feeling dysregulated, we want them to check in with the, the teaching staff, right? Whether that's the classroom teacher or an administrator coming in or an EA and then kind of look, oh, Okay, are they are they saying that this is an okay situation? And then they sort of settle themselves, right? If the adults around us are feeling comfortable and it's safe, then the child should 
essentially adapt to that. And sometimes kids have trouble doing that, or maybe they're not checking in with the right person. Um, so a, a, a big role for teachers is to function as co-regulators for their students. And um, that's a big job because, uh, you know, you have one teacher and many multiple students with multiple needs. And so you're constantly um, co-regulating them by making sure that they're feeling safe and secure and that they're, um, the, I describe it as their energy level, their state is um, a match to that situation. Okay. okay. Now, I know like I used to think of it, and I might have been wrong, that mm -hmm. when it came to fine motor skills, that mm -hmm. kind of fell under the, the occupational therapist. When it was gross motor, large muscle you know, movement, that was more physiotherapy. Was I off track on that, or is there some truth to that? No, no, for sure that there there is certainly that sort of separation, I guess, historically, we look at that. Um, however, I would say in the school setting, we don't typically have a lot of physical therapy intervention or, or um, consultation. So as an occupational therapist, what I would do is look at what are the tasks, whether it's a fine motor task or a gross motor task, and if a child's not, a student's not able to achieve that task, what's the barrier? Is it a motor deficit? Is it because they're not engaged in the activity? They're not paying attention to it. And then try to support those, um, those barriers, right? To provide strategies to support that. So I would say often I am making comments about gross motor activities or gross motor skills. Um, because I liked, I would, as an occupational therapist, we would look at the student as a whole, a whole person, right? Um, right. If there was uh, an underlying muscle weakness or range of motion, if there was an underlying physical deficit, we might suggest, let's uh, chat with a physical therapist and see what else we can do to support that. Um but I would also look at, are there other things that we need to keep in mind? Um, so a big role for occupational therapists in the school setting, I would say is the first and foremost is safety and um, yeah, basically safety and accessibility. I feel like that often is the priority in, this, in mm -hmm. a school setting. So if you did have a child, let's say that was wheelchair bound, can that child access that classroom? Can, or the school itself, the playground, do we need to look at any bathroom modifications? So there's an example of a physical dysfunction um, or a physical deficit, but as an OT, I would look at how do we set up the world around them to meet their needs and make and look at any modifications. Um, and so I might consult with a physical therapist as well, but there is certainly a place for OT in that in that regard for gross motor skills. Um, I'm finding more so that the bulk of time I spend in schools is really about that, the safety and security, uh, helping kids be engaged and cope in the classroom. And the quality of motor skills is almost more secondary that that's, um, less of a barrier because I think teachers are really skilled at adapting 
adapting things to meet the students' needs and differentiating. Um, whereas when we see lots of that, those children that are disengaged and not, um, they're not calm, they're not settled, they're, they're overwhelmed by the school environment, I feel like that is a huge area for occupational therapists to support. To me, given the amount of services that are available, that seems to be the priority to start with. Do you find too like early in intervention is is important as well? Like when working with children or in a school setting? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Like I I think the earlier and part of that is right the development of the brain and the earlier that we can support the intervention and provide the good a, a good fit for kids. The, the better the outcomes, right? Because the brain is developing and is taking in so much in those early years. And then we start to see some pruning and less of that flexibility. And so, yeah, I think you're going to for sure get more impact the earlier we intervene. And, and so that's a good point um, that often the OT services in the schools are targeted at those early years, the pre-K, K, grade one, and then as students get older, we have less and less involvement with them. And not mm -hmm. that there's not a place or there's not a situation where we would be coming in, but I feel like we put more of our resources in the early years so that we can intervene and hopefully mitigate some of the developmental issues, right? So Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. So do you have any recommendations for teachers, you know, like maybe in particular, like somebody who's new to the profession, a new teacher mm -hmm. when working with an OT or, you know, if they have concerns regarding a student, even any resources um, guess, that they could go to? Okay. Again, I would say um, in your school environment, there's usually an education support teacher or um um, a student support teacher, I guess the terminology is different from school division to school division, but to me that would be your, your first resource as a classroom teacher is to check with them and see what classroom strategies are supported, like those universal strategies that are supported within the school, um, school division. I really um, appreciate the focus on self-regulation um, is a program that's from... Uh, Edmonton Catholic Schools, that's a really excellent resource that is uh, ready to go. It's all, it's like lesson plans. It's really helpful for teachers, I find. Um, there's the zones of regulation. I really appreciate the school moves. So those are some resources, I guess, that you may have access to already in your school and more mm -hmm. that universal uh, approach, right? So if we can implement some of those strategies in the classroom, I think we'll target more um, students. Uh, and then, so start with that and look at in your classroom, who who is, um, who's the priority in terms of disruption of the flow of the classroom? That's something I, I try to look at. Like who are, who are those students that are kind of on the fringes and, and um, not able to adapt to the situation? And maybe they're, that's when we have further discussion with the student support teachers about uh, getting some extra resources and maybe more um, specific strategies for those students. 
So I think starting with those universal strategies first and implementing that because especially in the early years, right? All the, all the students will benefit from those developmental and those sensory motor strategies and then get more specific for the intensive needs um, that are, are in the classrooms. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Christina, um, for sharing with us the support that an OT can provide for students and teachers. And you definitely are a valued member in inclusive education. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was good to see you.